Hi, everyone, and welcome to Human Centered. I'm Nick Brunker, a group director of experience strategy at VML YNR and your host for the show. Thanks for giving us a listen. Oftentimes, when leaders are thinking about customer experience transformation, the focus and resources can understandably default towards retail buyers, and it makes sense. B2C buying patterns tend to be a bit less complex than their B2B counterparts and with potentially a more direct path to realizing ROI. It's not surprising then to see customer experience ratings tending to be a little higher on the B2C company side than those in the B2B space. B2C companies typically score in the 65 to 85% range, while B2B companies average less than 50%. Our guest today is laser focused on helping change that. It's very exciting to welcome in VML YNR's Executive Director of B2B, Justin Smith. Justin, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Nick. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Lots to get into today, but first, tell us a bit about your background and your path to VML YNR. Well, certainly. Let me let me start at the beginning. It's sort of interesting. My, my father was an ad man. In fact, uh, when he had a large agency in Beverly Hills in the 70s and 80s, and one of his first accounts was in-and-out burger, where he personally, as the executive creative director, coined the phrase, in-and-out, in-and-out, that's what a hamburger's all about, which has become a <laughs> sort of a, a legendary uh, slogan in Southern California. I never thought I'd follow in his footsteps, to be honest with you, Nick. I thought I was going to become an attorney, but boy, am I glad that I didn't go down <laughs> that road. But I'll tell you, it's it's uh, it's interesting. Um, one of my first jobs out of college was working at MIT at the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, where I worked on a very interesting project that was funded by DARPA that studied the use of persuasive language in Islamic propaganda texts. And in my work, I really truly discovered how the use of language and creative could be so persuasive. And I kind of caught the bug there. And then that sort of propelled me further to explore those horizons. Uh, I spent some time with our dear friends over at Omnicom and then on the media side with Verizon Media and eventually found my way over to uh, Vertical, which is the MarTech agency inside of Ogilvy Experience. And then ultimately here, so happy to be at VML YNR leading our integrated B2B practice. Well, and you're fresh off spending a few days at uh, the Forrester B2B North American Summit. I'd love to spend some time chatting with you about what you learned, what you were hearing, and, and down in Austin where you're located. If you boiled it all up, the handful of days that you spent uh, around the sites in Austin at the uh, B2B Summit, what was the big theme of this year's session? Yeah, definitely two really emergent themes. I would say first and foremost, everybody's thinking about and trying to wrap their arms around what is ABM or account-based marketing. The way I think about it, which is very sort of on brand for us here today, Nick, is more about ABX, account-based experiences. But then again, uh, everybody sort of has a definition and an approach to it. And secondarily to that, I would say, I, as I call technology entropy, which is essentially just the proliferation of tools and platforms that can all be leveraged by B2B marketers and sales professionals to ultimately drive their bottom lines. So in terms of how things have moved, obviously, in the technology space, you talk about just the overwhelming uh, number of solutions that are out there, even in the B2C space. On the B2B side, I imagine you're seeing, and kind of when you talk about entropy, there are plenty of incumbents, but there are also a lot of new technologies and solutions popping up. Is that something that, that you saw as a, a major discussion point? And, and how have people in that, that space uh, adapted to some of those changes? 
You're absolutely right. I mean, it probably grows exponentially almost daily. Uh, in fact, there's a, a gentleman, Scott Brinker, who runs the MarTech uh, blog, and he has this, these Lumascapes that sort of show the, all the technology vendors. I imagine he's probably having to update that on a, on a daily basis. And, and the difficulty is then if you're a leader, a CMO, a chief digital officer, you know, how do you decide what tools, what tool stacks to invest in? What what time horizon sort of makes sense to derive value? And I'll tell you, every vendor, of course, is going to tell you that they've got a lightning tool that's going to come in and work wonders for your business. And you've got to understand how that tool is going to really play well with other tools and what the sort of ultimate stack looks like when you link things together. And that's, you know, an area that I think is very important to me in the practice here because that's something that we can really help our clients make sense of because we fundamentally understand their challenges and business goals. Speaking back to some of the numbers that I hit off the top and, and how B2B tends to lag B2C, what makes creating differentiated experiences on the B2B side so much more challenging or, or at least challenging enough that the numbers are lagging? Well, gosh, Nick, you're so right. I mean, the complexity is inherent because there's this idea of what we call distributed decision making, meaning that generally, especially as the deal size grows, the amount of folks involved in making that decision also grows. And that, that occurs either formally where some companies have decision making committees or informally where they have groups of people that come together to decide on investments and potentially even on the periphery influencers. And the difficulty lies in ensuring that you're speaking to them individually and what's important to them, but also a cohesive and collective message. And we see a lot of that in terms of bigger deal sizes, lengthy sales cycles. Yeah. Speaking of, I was looking at some research that Forrester uh, had put out there about buying groups of more than four people are responsible for something like 60% of B2B purchases. So it makes sense that you're looking at, you know, a, a very different way of driving value and finding ROI. And, and speaking of ROI, I mean, there's a lot of ways that on the traditional B2C side and just customer experience overarchingly, you start to uncover those opportunities and value, personas and journey mapping and all that stuff. I'd love to kind of understand the path to delivering ROI for CX and for B2B practitioners like you. And I think those that are listening that are in the space would be really interested in you know, getting a sense of what are some of the things that, that you're doing in those areas uh, that might differ for somebody who is uh, attacking it from a B2B angle. Well, absolutely. And I think it, it begins and ends with appropriately and properly sizing the opportunity. Because from there, companies can then decide what proper level of investment they can put towards that particular deal. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly here talking about the enterprise side of things where, you know, these are sales cycles that might be up to two years and involve dozens of decision makers and influencers. But once you decide on that opportunity size, you, you essentially then have a North Star in terms of where can we put investments. Now, the most important part there is, and again, it's not recreating the real wheel. It's nothing that's super groundbreaking. You have to understand your customers and you have to understand them very fundamentally, how they, you know, operate as an individual, how they operate collectively, and, and the risks that they're willing to take, the things that may matter to them in terms of their job and the roles, responsibilities they have. But again, I go back to this idea as a human being. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about that more in a second, but that all begins there. You've got the opportunity size. You know that you've got a budget that you can put towards this opportunity. You've identified and understand the stakeholders, and then you move towards creating creative strategies to speak to them in a compelling way. 
and from a persona side too, I, I imagine it gets a little trickier when you're trying to map out journeys, which we could talk about in, in more detail in a second. Who are you solving for? Because like you said, you're solving for a lot of times the end customer, hopefully, but by way of perhaps somebody else who's helping make the decisions is in your experience, like what are, were some of the things that you've done when building those personas out uh, that some of our listeners might be able to, to take and, and run with in their own work? Well, absolutely. And I sort of glossed over this point without making it, but I'll, I'll say this. You know, in B2B, there used to be this idea that you had sales and you had marketing and marketing's job was to drive leads or, you know, qualified opportunities and throw them over a wall over to their Mm -hmm. sales counterparts. Well, in the really successful progressive companies that no longer exists, sales and marketing are deeply integrated because marketing must play a very important role throughout the entire sales cycle and even post sales to ensure retention and overall growth over time. And so when we think about creating personas, it's a holistic endeavor that requires inputs from sales and marketing. And I'll take it one step further. In these large enterprise deals, you go from personas all the way to what I actually have been doing for some of our clients and creating dossiers that are very specific to those individuals, taking the archetypes that we would utilize in personas and actually applying those to identified individuals so that we can best understand what their needs and motivations are. I think it's fascinating. And it also makes the investigation portion of the work um, perhaps even more challenging, but also, if nothing else, just richer because you, you take the personas, you start to map their journey. But along the way, as you were talking about uncovering opportunities, you have to talk and think through the decision makers, but also perhaps what we consider power users and survey them and research them. And that, that's an activity that's more complicated than finding a random sample of, of brand consumers who might fit a particular persona. It sounds like even just investigating, once you even have the personas, can be a bit more challenging of an activity, couldn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the other issue is that you there's so much data and data opportunity out there. So when you think about enriching these profiles, these dossiers, the personas, as you you know begin to filter, filter, refine, 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 you have to be very selective in terms of how you're going to enrich them to ensure that what you're adding to them is going to be truly additive in terms of your goal and your mission. Because there's a lot of data that can be appended and enriched to these profiles that quite frankly, it just don't matter. Mm-hmm. And I think what was also a point that, that you made that I, I want to build upon a little bit, which is making a business case for CX may look a little different when we talk about the way you think about customer satisfaction in the B2C space. You know, Satisfaction and ease of use and all those things are still very much applicable in B2B, but the angle is, is slightly different. Talk about, in your experience, how you've made a clear and concise business case for things like you just talked about. Absolutely. Well, to me, to be honest with you, it's quite simple. My definition of CX is this. If the customer is experiencing it, it's CX. And so for me, taking that wide lens, that wide view of things really makes the case that you have to understand, and I think it's very intuitive for a lot of folks on the other side of that conversation, to sort of understand that you have a, a sea of opportunity through experience. And, and the goal is to drive engagement because engagement in a lot of different ways denotes a certain amount of intent, intent to potentially learn more, intent to potentially buy down the line. 
but more than anything, engagement also delivers insight into how a person or a prospect or a customer might be sort of thinking. And as we know, right, crafting these custom-tailored experiences makes the buying process much easier. And so, again, taking both this idea that, again, if the customer is experiencing it, it's CX, telling that story, let's say, to a, to a CMO to sort of drive home the importance of understanding the need for cohesity across channels, sales, marketing, product, all the way through, really puts a finer point on that. And it really comes to life in a neat way. I want to circle back to something, too, you talked about in uh, account-based marketing and an analogy that we were talking about pre-show where, you know, in a lot of spaces, the metaverse, a big, very common use case right now in a lot of our conversations, there, there's still a lot of definition to be built around it. Account-based marketing, it it sounds like from what you were saying, is also not, I want to use the term Wild West, but it, it does seem like nobody really knows what it's going to be yet. Do you see that in the space, when we talk about solving for these solutions, trying to make the business case, there is still a bit of guesswork right now because that account-based marketing approach is, is still kind of nascent in a lot of ways. Well, absolutely. You know, the genesis of account-based marketing was years and years ago, and I, I don't know if this is lore or, 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 or <laughs> accurate, but uh, I believe it started in the medical device industry where these sellers of big, expensive medical devices had to sell them into hospitals. And they understood that, well, geez, we have to sell to hospital administrators, folks in finance, the doctors, the practitioners, and, you know, that's highly complex. And I think a lot of a lot of what we see today, especially at the intersection of technology and account-based marketing, are amazing vendors who are doing a great job by calling their platforms ABM. And what they do is it's essentially like you have a targeted account list and you're going to market to those accounts. Now, again, I take a bit of a more progressive sort of look at account-based marketing. I think going back to a point I made earlier, it begins with opportunity identification and sizing. Let me give you a really good example. Let's say you're a cloud provider and you know you want to sell into a big bank and you know that this cloud solution, it's, it's not just selling, it's a true partnership that is going to generate $100 million over the next five years. Well, how much can you spend as a marketer to close that deal? Probably quite a bit. Now, that answers one question, but how are you then going to spend that? Once you've identified and sized that opportunity, let's get very specific. Should we be creating content that, again, is bespoke, let's say, to the CTO at that bank? Absolutely. That's account-based marketing. Should we be crafting entire bespoke customer journeys for that, that identified decision-making committee? Again, absolutely. Because the effort that we're going to put towards it is all relative to the size of the opportunity. And there's a way to be very data-driven about this because you can back test and look back at, at opportunities that you've closed in one. And again, pooling and integrating the insights from sales and product teams is very enriching to be able to, again, provide a compelling experience for your potential prospects and buyers so that they feel spoken to on the terms and things that they that are important to them, which makes that purchase easier, but even more importantly, makes purchases down the line easier and easier. Well, and you were pulling on this thread earlier, and it's a nice segue to uh, the idea of, and it's probably going to sound a, a bit cheesy, of you know, B2B hasn't always been, and I don't even know if it's made the transition yet, to human to human. But inevitably, you hear B2B, and a lot of times the uh, maybe it's archaic, but the thought is, is is it is not human first. I'm sure that's obviously 
not always been officially the case, uh, w- whether it's was it was skewing more towards, as we were talking about off the top, you know, B2C focused when we talk customer experience, CX. But for far too long, the, the whether right or wrong, perception could be that B2B isn't human first. But it sounds like from your conversations in Austin over the last couple of weeks, that's changing. Oh, it absolutely has changed. And I think there's a couple sort of data points there. The conversations I had here in Austin, the fact that Can Lions now has the B2B Creative Award for the very first time this year, which I'm so proud and excited to see. Uh, but it goes a little bit even more beyond that, where, you know, B2B marketing has been dominated, and rightly so to a certain extent, by product marketers for a very, very long time that were hell-bent on pitching the features and functionality of their given solution or the proposition of whatever that was going to solve. And without really spending any time on concepts that we know is very important, like brand experience, for example. And I think that that's all changed because we've changed. B2B buyers have evolved. Now, I won't go down too much of a rabbit hole here, but a lot of this acceleration to a more human-to-human you know, sort of idea in B2B was, of course, accelerated by the pandemic that we are still in to a certain degree, of course, where instead of having, you know, a lot of in-person conferences and demos, things like that, a lot of it had to become digital. And a lot of folks were working from home where, you know, they've got children to tend to, their pets, they've got a spouse, family members, who knows what's going on. But essentially, they're in the midst of working, but like physically, they're also like occupying the space of like just their human existence. And I don't want to sound too cheeky about it, but as I talk about, you know, it's like there's so much more to who we are, right, as human beings in so many different contexts and capacities. Just because we might be evaluating a solution that can bring to bear value in our professional capacity doesn't mean that some magic occurs where we check all our humanistic uh, attributes at the door. We're still we're still driven by, you know, Again, some may disagree, but like Maslow's hierarchy of needs still comes into play. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just disappear. So I think to focus on that, and that's, you know, I'll just say this. That's probably, you know, being a little bit uh, overboard on this, but that's what I love. And that's one of the main reasons I'm here at VMLYNR is because we can so uniquely solve for this in a human capacity. Our integrated approach across all of our very different disciplines can come together so nicely to account for the human to human component within B2B. It's super fascinating because I think it it boils back down or up, depending on how you look at it, to the same general (laughs) principles of human empathy, understanding needs, and trying to deliver solutions that, that meet those needs. And we talk about human to human, but, you know, in the quote unquote experience era, we've talked a lot about being in a place to to solve for the greater good, like being able to say the individual has these needs. What are the things that we can tap into? And perception, of course, being reality in a lot of cases, big metric of success. And a lot of times is not only satisfaction, but trust. Authentic brands are the ones winning, the ones that spend the time really developing and, and um, fostering strong relationships. Again, B2C a lot of times are the ones that are rising to the top. It's well-documented. On the B2B side, I'm going to tie back to something that you said earlier about how decision-making is changing and becoming a lot faster. I would assume in B2B, trust is as 
big, if not bigger, uh, of a success metric and a need than it is in any other industry or any other uh, you know, section of business, right? Well, it absolutely is. And I think it's because, you know, there's a lot on the line. There's a lot at stake for B2B decision makers because, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing this, of course, from, from Forrester, but there's, and I'm going to not do it the justice that it deserves in our brief time here, but there's this idea, this framework where solutions are either addressing a known problem with a known solution, a known problem with a novel solution, or a novel, sol- a novel problem with a novel solution. And one of the things I like to sort of point out there is I ask people, where do you think trust is most important in that? And I don't know that there's a consensus view on that. But for me, trust is actually most important in the first scenario where there's a known problem with known solutions and you're trying to sell in something that's potentially novel. Well, there's likely an incumbent. So let's let's close our eyes and let's imagine that we're a B2B buyer at a large company that's, you know, staking our professional reputation uh, on, on a big purchase. And I mean, just imagine what must be going through that person's head. Now, again, I don't want to, you know, overemphasize this, but they're not thinking like a robot. They're thinking as a human being. How might this decision impact, you know, my career trajectory? How might this impact my team, my ability to grow? All those different factors. You know, if I don't grow, am I going to be able to, you know, take that? What about this vacation I want to take? What about my job security? All these things come into place. And so that's why trust emerges as being completely essential because B2B vendors have to rely on trust. These are not, you know, small transactional deals where they're very low risk. I mean, these these could put a big imprint on on a business and a person's career. Yeah, and, and obviously that tethers in directly to livelihood. And, and so in, in many cases, even if you're buying a house, let's say the most important, one of the more important personal purchases you're going to make, there's probably, I wouldn't say equal weight, but probably close to it. When you're, if you're a, a leading marketer, a CMO or a CTO of some sort, and you're, you're making decisions at your company that could affect your ability to actually have a livelihood on a, on a daily basis. So I think it's really uh, an interesting point in a way that for a lot of folks who are on the traditional you know, B2C, CX side of the house, thinking about taking some of those same building blocks, those same ingredients, and stitching it over on the B2B side, which is uh, something I know that you're super passionate about. It's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Before we wrap up, I'd love to you know, spend a bit more time getting to know you a little bit. I know you, you gave us some background at the top of the show, but what we've done over the, the course of our many podcasts is go off the beaten path and a bit of a, a fun facts uh, expedition a bit. Do you have any hobbies or anything that you, you get into when you're not on the clock doing B2B stuff? Absolutely. So I live here in Austin, Texas, which has been one of the coolest cities probably in the world, although I gotta say it's getting a little expensive and a little crowded, <laughs> but we're on that another time. But yeah. it is the, the live music capital of the world. And uh, my beautiful, amazing wife, Ashley, and I, we enjoy live music any chance we get. Very eclectic from roots reggae to classic rock to jazz and blues, house music, you name it. We love getting out there and having a fun time. And when I'm not doing that, uh, I'm doing something pretty cool. I'm in the midst of restoring a 1964 Chevy Impala, which I I always wanted one. And well, now that I've grown up, uh, I can afford big boy toys. So I got (laughs) one and I've been restoring it. And what a journey, especially just quickly to sort of see, you know, how these things were made some 50 plus years ago. Uh, compared to our modern automobiles. Very, very interesting. What got you into that? Was that something you've always had kind of a, an 
interest in or did that become a hobby you just developed over time? Well, I'll tell you, uh, it's going to sound extremely random, but I actually was in a low rider car club when I was in high school <laughs> and I had a pickup truck that was a low rider and it was hilarious. I mean, it was very cool. I had the coolest group of friends. I'm still friends with them to this day. And I just started feeling, you know, you get up there, I turn 40 next next month and I started feeling a little nostalgic and I wanted something to, to go back in time into those mm-hmm. roots. So it's it's been a, a labor of love. That's so cool. And, and obviously one of those things that, it's not like you could just pick it up and, and YouTube exists for a reason. But I mean, imagine if you haven't been doing it as a, you know, a passion profession or, or otherwise for a long time, that's got to be kind of tricky. I mean, are you finding it relatively easy to pick up as you've gotten into it or is, has it been a learning curve for you? Oh, it's certainly been a learning curve <laughs> in a lot of different ways. I mean, there's so it's, and it is interesting because I'll tell you what, I'll call local mechanics to help me with various bits and pieces. And it's so intuitive to them where I see things, some parts very intuitive and others, you know, I admire the complexity (laughs) that they had back then when they were building these Mm -hmm. things. And just the way that even with some of the most unsophisticated technology, it all roars to life and propels you down the road having a fun time. Man, it's so cool. And we'll have to get some pictures up on our, our podcast pages. So you have to send a couple of our way so that our listeners can can take a peek at your uh, your handiwork. That'd be great. Justin, it, it's been so great having a chance to catch up with you. Thank you for carving out the time to do this and all the expertise that you bring. Thanks again. Likewise, Nick. Thank you so much for having me on. And thanks to you all for listening to Human Centered as well. To learn more about RCX practice and our approach to the work, check us out online at vmlyr.com slash CX. We'd also love to hear your feedback on the show. You can give us a rating and offer up your thoughts wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, and more. Have a topic idea or just want to drop us a line? You can connect with me on Twitter at Nick Brunker or shoot us an email. The address is humancentered at vmlyr.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.